in the previous episode, we talked about the fact that if we assume or if we take the Bible as a standalone document, then there's certain steps we have to take in order to interpret it correctly, which are steps we take any, any other time we, we read a standalone document. Anytime we, we pick up a book, uh, we apply the steps um, assuming that we need to. So um, if we pick up a book that um, we don't need, we don't understand, we don't necessarily have the background to understand what it is. We need, we need to get this frame of reference from somewhere and we need to, to get some kind of uh, unifying element, figure out some kind of unifying element that brings a story together so that it makes sense. So basically we need to, to make sense of the Bible, we need to figure out the metaphysics and the macro narrative and to give that a priority in our interpretation and then go back try to make sense of everything else. <clears throat> and the other element of making sense of the Bible as a standalone document is, is to assume limited errancy because this essentially the inerrant approach just hasn't worked. Okay, so um, once we do this, I mentioned that um, we have this external metaphysical constructs that people have been applying to scripture, which come from, from Greek philosophy, that we have to try to separate ourselves from and look for uh, the Bible to provide its own metaphysics. All right, so uh, just to kind of think back a little bit about um, <clears throat> kind of the process humanity has gone through in, this, in its various stages of development, uh, Picture yourself in an elevator and you're sitting there waiting for the door to, doors to close and eventually you get tired of waiting so you decide to start pushing the closed doors button. There's, there's usually a button there that's, you know, just says close, close the door and you start pushing it several times and then the doors finally close and you leave. And then the next time you get on that elevator, again, you're sitting waiting, waiting, and then you remember, oh yeah, let me push this button and the doors close. So then you start thinking, yeah, maybe maybe there's a connection. Maybe the button needs to be pressed to, to close the doors at a proper time. But a lot of times in reality, those, those buttons actually don't do anything. So they're, you, you might call them placebo buttons. But our mind kind of plays tricks on us because we, we create these correlations and these connections in our mind. And we say, yeah, um, I did X, Y, Z, and this happened. So there's some kind of connection. <clears throat> and one of the... Uh, proofs of this tendency of people to, to build connections, to, to have this pattern recognition, you know, this tendency to read, read into things, stuff that isn't actually there is, is the fact that there's a, there's a billion dollar supplement industry where people take all this stuff, even though there's almost no scientific evidence that any of it works, but people are convinced it, it, it does all these things for them. And this is today, this is the 21st century. This is at a point where we have modern science. We 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 travel we travel into space. You know we we travel hundreds of thousands of miles per hour through space. But um, somehow we're still fooled by you know things like you know just random medical claims that they have no basis in anything uh, that that can be supported by science. So if that's the case today, think about how that is when it goes back, when you go back into history thousands of years as the human race was just starting to, to develop and to um, you know, come to terms with itself, so to speak, as they're trying to make sense of rea the reality around them. So um, you know, 
people, they, they have no frame of reference. They don't have uh, the scientific knowledge we have today. You know, they're just looking around and they're, they're, they're trying to make sense of, of nature, trying to make sense of reality. And, you know, they, they start to believe in luck. If you do this, you have good luck. If you do this, you have bad luck. If you, if you wear this, this charm, you, you're protected from evil. If you, if you touch this uh, other thing, it's, you get bad luck from it. You know, all kinds of superstitions. If you see this or if you do this, it's going to backfire. People come up with all these rituals and sacrifices and different kinds of speculations about reality because they think, you know, uh, maybe we, maybe uh, the reason we had this bad storm is because the gods are, bad, are mad at us. So we need to offer some kind of sacrifice or to do some kind of ritual just to appease them. And then if, if we did it and it worked, like, you know, let's say harvest was coming up and we decided, oh man, last time we had a harvest, we had this really bad storm and it destroyed everything and we went hungry for a year. So this year, just to make sure the gods don't get mad again, let's do a certain sacrifice. So then you do the sacrifice and the storm doesn't come and you say, hey, maybe the sacrifice works. So all these things people come up with just trying to make sense of nature around them and trying to figure out how to survive and then they pass it on from parents to children. And every time you tell the story from one generation to the next, it gets embellished a little more and it becomes a little more complex. And eventually when you, when you have larger societies formed, all these religious or superstitious ideas are sort of compiled together and they're formalized into, into something that actually uh, follows certain rules and, and pretty much everyone is expected to go along with the formal version of the, of the religion. And then you have people that <clears throat> become experts in, in all these different ideas and they rise to prominence because you know, the, whoever is at the head of the religion um, is fairly, you assume they're fairly close to God or they have insights into reality that other people don't have. So they have influence now over kings, they have influence over leaders and they become part of making major decisions. You know, should we go to war? Should we um, join forces with this other kingdom? Whatever decisions that are affecting everybody end up being made on 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 just superstitions and things that have no basis in reality, but they they just happen to kind of accumulate over over centuries from people just inventing stuff and passing it on from, from parents to children. Um, and then, you know, people's whole lives end up being tied to these things because now there's money involved. You know, you, you, you rise to prominence as a religious leader, but then you need to find a way to support yourself. So you need to, to invent things that will give people a reason to come and offer sacrifices and uh, donate and all this stuff. So all these things develop over time and they're different everywhere. So, you know, you might do things a certain way in your country. And at this point in history, people are not able to get into airplanes or cars and travel around and see what everybody else is doing. So every all they know is that everybody around them believes things the same way. But if somebody was to travel across to another land that's several hundreds of miles away, they'll realize that those people have their own unique set of beliefs, their own unique uh, rituals, and they do everything else differently. And it's for the same reason, because this thing just evolved over time from, from just people making random assumptions about reality. Now, I'm, I'm just sharing this because we got to understand that this is the context in which the philosophy of the Greeks was born. So at, at this point in time, 
the Greek philosophers like Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, and many others, they didn't have the advantages we have today to be able to kind of see the world a certain way and, and, and work with all, the, all, this, all this knowledge that we have and to develop our philosophy from there. They were actually responding to this specific context. So the intellectual raw materials that they had to wor work with were very limited and they were reacting to things that they saw were negative. So, you know, the things they came up with and the, the conclusions they arrived at would have, would have been different if they were re reacting to different issues, but they were actually reacting to a specific set of issues which were part of the context in which, in which they were doing their philosophy. So we need to keep these things in mind as we think about uh, the philosophers. So the philosophers began by questioning things. You know, Socrates was famous for just questioning everything, right? And it makes sense. I mean, if, you, if you're going around and you're watching all these people do all these different things just because um, they have all these beliefs about reality, you know, there's all these gods out there and, and <clears throat> you gotta make sure you don't offend God number one when you give a sacrifice to God number two. And people are constantly worried about, you know, uh, I I did this particular thing and that's bad luck, and then I need to do this other thing to get my get my good luck back and all this stuff. And it's only natural for for a philosopher to come on the scene and say, hey, why are people doing this? What basis do they have for these ideas? Where do they come from? And question everything. And Socrates got himself in trouble by questioning things that other people took for granted and took seriously. Uh, so. This was part of the process, part of the part of the steps in the philosophical development of that era. Now, once they they questioned the 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 worldviews that they they um, within they function within in which they lived, they tried to build an alternative and to build it on reason as opposed to just superstition. So. In doing so, they, they try to <clears throat> sort of overcorrect certain things. And um, so here are some of the things they came up with. Well, you know, they lived in a world where there were all these different gods and they were constantly fighting, constantly arguing. They, they got jealous, they got mad and all this stuff. They got offended, envious. And the philosophers, philosophers said, no, that doesn't make sense. It's probably that there's just one God that is the supreme being, and and essentially there's there's nobody more powerful than this one God, and <clears throat> whatever, whoever he is, that's that's basically where it stops. Like you can't have all this, all these beings that are equally powerful. You know, there's one God that is more powerful than all of them. Uh, and then you know they, the way a lot of times people view the gods is that they view them as just slightly superior than us. So <clears throat> the gods were a bit more powerful. They were a bit stronger than everybody else. Um, but, you know, not, not a lot. They were just superior. But instead, the philosophers looked at the one god as an infinitely superior being. It was on, he was on a whole different level of existence. He was completely separated from humanity, and he was bigger and greater than anything we can imagine. Um, and then whereas the gods of the Greeks were pretty much had the same humans, human emotions like, like we did, you know, like I said, they were jealous and mad and angry and, you know, sometimes they even lost it after human beings. Um, 
the Greeks, the philosophers, uh, conceived of a God that was impassable or basically had no emotions. He was, he was beyond emotions. He was incapable of, of having the kind of emotions that we have. But again, all these things have to be understood in the context of what they were reacting to and the kind of, the kind of beliefs that they were trying to oppose. Okay, so there's other things that the philosophers came up with. So Plato came up with an idea called the forms. And I would argue that this is just the, the reason he came up with this is just by observing nature. Uh, today's scientists um, um, have the term called the, the term of entropy, which talks about how things tend towards disorder over time. And the philosophers notice this, they recognize that things deteriorate, you know, you, you build a house and if you don't take care of it over time, it just degenerates, it gets older and older, it gets bad and it falls apart eventually. So pretty much anything in this world ends up coming apart with time. Um, so in that sense, they started getting this view of matter and of changing of time as being something bad. You know, matter deteriorates, changes the, the element that leads to deterioration. Time is the context in which change happens. So in their mind, all these things had a negative connotation. And um, because of this, uh, because they view, uh, or I should say first that because they view things as deteriorated over time, they work backwards and they work their way back to this idea of a forms. So they believe that there was this ideal, the sort of original, and everything that existed was sort of a copy of this original um, universal or idea or form that everything was a copy of, so to speak. So they started to conceive reality as being dualistic, you know, so there was the spiritual reality where the forms or ideals existed. And then there was the material reality and the material was a shadow of the spiritual reality. So they started viewing the world as a shadow of something else. And Plato has this famous analogy of the cave where, you know, there's people, he, he, he talked about how there, there's people inside a cave and they've been their whole lives in the cave and they're staring at the cave wall and there's a fire behind them and all they see are the shadows on the wall and they don't see reality as it is. They're just seeing the shadows. Um, anyway, the, the analogy goes on, but um, uh, the, the thing is they, they, they started, they came up with this um, notion of how things are <clears throat> based on deductions that they made from things they observed in the, in the real world. And also, like I said, because of the context that they were operating in. So to the Greek mind, to the Greek philosophers, they came to the conclusion that the fact that as human beings were conscious and were able to contemplate spiritual things, were able to contemplate the fact that there are forms and ideals out there and the fact that the world is deteriorating, but there's something outside the world that is uh, eternal and unchanging and uh, uh, perfect and all this stuff, that led them to believe that our, our minds are connected somehow to the spiritual reality. So even though we're physical organisms, just like all the other physical organisms, the fact that we're different than everything else in the, in the sense that we can contemplate these things means that 
uh, we have a connection to the spirit realm. So there's a part of us that is spiritual while the rest of us is material. And then of course they concluded that if the material dies, the spiritual lives on. And this is why Socrates was willing to, to commit suicide because he didn't really fear death in that sense. Now, all these different ideas led the, the philosophers to a very, very distinct concept of God. They had a, their own unique idea of what God was like that was derived from this philosophical presuppositions that they were working with. And we'll come back to this in a second. Now, again, they had limited raw materials to work with. And given what they had to work with, they've accomplished certain, they had, their accomplishments were pretty impressive. Um, and everybody today, including <clears throat> atheistic scientists and, and philosophers will acknowledge the fact that people like Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle changed the world, and that they were tremendous geniuses, and that they were able to come up with uh, very impressive and very significant stuff that has has helped uh, the humanity progress after that. But the question is, would those philosophers, if they could somehow come back to life today and see everything that humanity has accomplished up to now, would they still hold those same views today? Would they still view the world the way they did back then if they could see all the, the rest of the, the discoveries that humanity has made the past 2,500 years? And I would say chances are that they, that, that they actually might not anymore. Um, unfortunately, for us, a lot of these ideas were immortalized by Christian tradition. So uh, I have kind of a, a graphic here where I showed that philosophy has a tendency to develop or evolve over time as people keep thinking, keep processing, keep looking at things from different angles. So you have an older philosophy and then time passes and you get a newer philosophy and then it grows into something else, into the newest philosophy that we have today. But when you have tradition in the mix, what you have is old philosophy, it becomes a, it gets incorporated into trad tradition and then you end up with the same old philosophy a thousand years later. And the reason this is happening is because the philosophy got, in, got sort of taken into to Christian theology as a basis for that theology. And, and theology is, is supposed to not change. Theology is assumed to be eternal. It's assumed to be, you know, a revelation from God. So that means it has to be correct no matter what. So because of that, um, I would propose that maybe one of the reasons we still have Christians today that still hold on to this ancient philosophical perspectives, this ancient metaphysical perspectives is because of Christian tradition immortalizing what would otherwise have naturally changed over time on its own. And it did change. I mean, philosophy has changed and, and Christians ended up having to make changes eventually like with Aquinas, uh, like I mentioned earlier, Aquinas, changing things from a Platonic perspective to an Aristotelian perspective. But still, uh, tradition in a sense, I would say has sort of um, kept things in place a lot more or has uh, stalled or froze, frozen theological, philosophical development in a way that would not have happened naturally if philosophy was left alone to develop on its own. Anyway. That's that's something of a, a way or a perspective on, on, on how to think about this ancient philosophy. And I know a lot of Christians uh, 
will disagree with this because they do think that that philosophy has value, but we're looking at things now from the perspective of a possible solar scriptural theology, and this could explain why we end up where we end up with, with our theology. Okay, so what do we do if we compare that ancient philosophy with the scripture? Okay, so the primary point of divergence, which, which ends up being the, the basis for every other point of divergence, I would say, is the concept of God that the philosophers had. Um, it has come to be known as classical theism. And if you look up classical theism, it, it, it talks about a concept of God that is simple, immutable, impassable, and timeless. So this God is a metaphysically ultimate being. So basically God is the greatest imaginable being, the most perfect, the, the absolute greatest being that you could have, which seems to go along with the scripture. But the problem is of course, what definition of great and what definition of perfect they use. Uh, obviously our notions of greatness are skewed by our own perspective on things. Now, <clears throat> um, a lot of Christian philosophers will say, um, no, the, the Greek notion of God is a logical necessity. Um, basically, a lot of them will argue that it is impossible for God to be any other way. Um, I think those arguments are no longer taken to carry as much weight today as they did hundreds of years ago, because in Christianity, there's many different philosophical perspectives. So um, essentially the people that, that, that take this position, they're not just contending with what I'm saying here, they're contending against many other theologians that disagree with them. So I'm, I'm, <clears throat> I'm not alone in, in taking this position. Now, um, Another, another argument that people bring up is to say that uh, the classical theism version of God is necessary because we need to protect Christianity from, from heretical viewpoints like pantheism or panentheism, uh, polytheism, process theism, dualism, deism, and all these different isms that are out there that are definitely wrong. So dualism, for example, is this notion that there's two equally powerful good and evil gods. One is good, one is evil. Uh, deism is this notion that God created things, but then left and everything's on its own and pretty much um, it's not like the universe doesn't need God to operate once it's been built. Um, process deism is the notion that God just develops over time. He evolves, he becomes greater and greater with time as well. Just just kind of the way human beings grow over time. Um, and, and the Bible doesn't allow for this for this or the, you know, the Bible contradicts these ideas, or it's not, they're not, <clears throat> these ideas are not in harmony with the scripture, but the Bible also contradicts the classical theist perspective. Um, it is not, it is not harmonious the way a lot of people try to argue that it would be. Um, and essentially, it, all these different things um, are really a, a, a a result of the limits of the ability of the human mind to philosophically derive things about about God that are way who's way beyond our reach as it is. So, <clears throat> one of the problems with approaching the scripture from a philosophical perspective, and specifically through the this concept of a classical theism or the classical theist version of God is that it ends up 
forcing theologians to assign many aspects of the Bible and to, to categorize them as allegorical. So basically, because God is timeless, for example, so God doesn't experience the passing of time. He's not historical. Uh, a lot of things that happen in the Bible are more allegorical than real because God would not actually come and interact the way the Bible describes him to interact or, or things where it talks about God becoming angry or upset with people. Well, God is impassable. He has no emotions. He never changes. So um, these things are not real. They're allegorical. So <clears throat> when you look at the Bible and you say, okay, how about we set our philosophical notions aside and we look at what the Bible has to say about God, the requirement for a sola scriptura theology is to work with the biblical data. In other words, if the majority of the biblical data points in one direction, then that is, that is the perspective that the Bible teaches, regardless of how we feel about it from a philosophical perspective. But the Bible has a concept of God that is very much temporal, very much historical. You know, he comes and walks with Adam and Eve in the garden in the cool of the evening, it says in Genesis. Uh, he comes and has lunch with Abraham. Um, he speaks face to face with Moses. He builds a house. He tells the Israelites to build a house so he could live among them, right? So the Bible again and again paints a picture of God that is very different than the picture of God that you get from philosophy, from, at least from classical philosophy. Um, you could say the same thing about the, the impassibility concept, the lack of emotions. You know, Jesus is, is sharing these parables and the parables are not actually about him. They're about God the Father, right? So he talks about the prodigal son and the fact that the father runs and, and meets his son a long way off when he sees him coming. And then he talks about how he wanted to gather the, um, his people together like a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, right? But these are reflections of the character of God who these reflections come across as, as purely emotional. I mean, you know, obviously the Bible does give us a picture of God as being beyond the petty emotions that humans have where, you know, they get jealous or envious or anything like that. Even though sometimes he uses those terms, like God became jealous with them or uh, God became angry with them. But when you look at the big picture of the Bible, you see that those are in fact those are limited instances or limited points of data that are in fact anthropomorphisms or, or God is using human language to describe his emotion. But when you look at the big picture, while God might not be petty like human beings, he does feel, he does hurt, he does have this angst inside him when, when trying to, to save people. And that picture of God is not congruent with the philosophical notion of God that we get from the Greeks and as a result, people, Christian theologians have had to dismiss or, or ignore or downplay certain parts of the Bible in order to line up theology, Christian theology with, with the Greek um, notions of God, the, the philosophical concepts of God. So if we're going to do sola scriptura theology, we got to allow God to be what the scripture portrays him to be. And if we could figure out a philosophy around that data, then by all means. But if we can't, still, there, we got to acknowledge the fact that there's certain limitations to our ability to, to, to wrap our minds around God. And it's okay if we don't have a full 
philosophical construct to work with, but as long as we're faithful to the biblical data. I mean, that's what you gotta do if you're interested in doing Sola Scriptura archeology. span So having looked at that concept of God, because every, the, the, the metaphysics, the traditional metaphysics starts with the, the concept of God and then makes assumptions about everything else based on how it views God. But if the God of the Bible doesn't paint that picture of God, where God is this timeless, this uh, uh, separate from others, this sort of uh, emotionless, unaffected, um, simple, com completely different than everything else, um, then some of the subsequent conclusions don't work as well. So what are some of the other things that, that philosophy has affected when it comes to Christian theology. Well, in Greek philosophy, you have this notion that you have a timeless God in a temporal world. So again, because of that, the understanding is that matter, time, and change are, are bad or they're a shadow of things. They're not, they're not the ideal. The ideal is God's reality and everything we experience here is sort of an imperfection, uh, a, a falling short of this ideal. It's a shadow, it's not the real thing. So there's a pessimistic notion of matter, time, and change. If you look at scripture, however, um, that's just not the case. The Bible describes matter, time, and change as being very good from the beginning. So when, when God created the world, he created it to experience change. He created it to be experienced in time. And he created it a physical world and he created it to be, and, and he, he looked at it and admitted that it's very good. So it was good to be this way. So um, the Bible describes the world as we see it as, as the medium of our existence, as opposed to this being only a shadow of some, some other realm of existence. Now, this world was marred by sin. It was affected by sin and the, the fall of Adam and Eve, but the, and, and then sin, has certain effects. And some of these effects are things that the philosophers observe, but they misinterpreted the effects of sin as being part of the world itself. So um, the fact that things deteriorate with time and they get worse and things break down, some of these things, maybe not all of them, but some of these things could be the effect of sin on the world and not the way God created the world. And yet God still created the world to experience change, to experience time, to be made of matter, to be physical. So um, <clears throat> they drew conclusions based on how they observe reality without having an understanding of the effects of sin on the planet and, and um, the fact that God created things to be this way from the beginning, except for the sin part. Now, um, a lot of Christians hold to this notions of what today is usually called substance dualism where you have the physical, and then you have the spiritual or the immaterial, which is where our consciousness is, where our personhood is, and so on. And a lot of Christians believe that this is what the Bible teaches because that's what they've always known. And of course, you know, there's, you know, you could go to the New Testament and you say to be absent from the bodies, to be present from, with the Lord, or um, um, I long to depart and be with Christ, Paul says. But um, some of the reasons for this are the fact that a lot of times we read the New Testament first and then we go to the Old Testament and we sort of 
we bring our modern notions of reality and we impose them on the New Testament. And then we take the New Testament and impose that on the old instead of following the sequence I described before where you, you use the Old Testament and you follow it in its chronological sequence to develop your, your view of reality or your metaphysics. And then you use that to interpret the New Testament. And then, and then if you need to go back and make sense of some of the elements in the Old Testament afterwards. Um, and, and then there's also bias in the translation. I mean, there's certain things that are translated in some of the popular versions, like the King James, for example, keeps talking about so-and-so died and gave up the ghost or whatever. But all that, all that phrase is really saying in the original is that he, he breathed his last breath or whatever, but it's translated gave up the ghost. So it gives the impression that, yeah, there's some kind of a, uh, a spirit element of the human being. Uh, but the, when, when reasoning to this stuff, we got to ask ourselves, is there a default stance here? Um, are, can we assume something before we start reading scripture or do we, where do we start? And the thing is, the only thing we can assume is the things we already know. So we already know we exist in this world. We already know we are phys physical beings in a physical reality. We can take that for granted because that's universal. That's understood by everybody. This, this world does exist. Anybody that is willing to, to face reality will admit that, yes, we do live in this physical world and we do live in a material reality and we are material. Uh, we have material bodies and all this stuff. So that part doesn't need to be proven because that part we could take for granted simply because it's a, a universal, universally acknowledged fact. It's the, the dualistic part that the Bible needs to prove. And if you follow the, the scripture in its chronological sequence, you would expect to see things there that just aren't there. Like um, if the Bible intended to teach this notion of a dualistic reality, the way the Greeks teach it or the way the Greeks understood it in light of their metaphysics, you would expect to see things in the Bible that you don't find. Uh, the Bible seems to give priority to this reality, to the, the reality that God created for us to exist in and to take seriously, as opposed to always thinking that, well, it doesn't matter what we do here because it's, it's the other world that matters. Or, uh, you know, it doesn't matter what you do to my body because it's my soul that matters. Or it doesn't matter what I do to the world around me because I have, you know, my soul exists in a different sphere of existence or whatever. God created us to take this medium seriously. This is who we are. This is where we are. This is how we exist. So um, if, if we look at, um, if we try to decipher what reality is like, what metaphysics is being uh, described in scripture, we come to a, a very different picture of reality than what the Greeks had. And once we do that, it affects the way we interpret the rest of the rest of scripture. Um, another thing that is affected by the, the Greek perspective uh, of th on things is um, ethics or morality, the concept of morality. And also I mentioned this in, a, in the previous session, but I'll des describe a little, a little more now because we have more information to work with. And that is the concept of revelation and inspiration and how God communicates with people. Okay, so let's talk about ethics first. Um, <clears throat> So the Greeks had this sort of reversed order of reasoning through things. Um, 
or they, they reason backwards to arrive at certain conclusions. So they said, okay, let's look at the world around us. Things everywhere seem to, de- 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 seem to change and deteriorate over time. They seem to get worse. As time progresses, they fall apart, they break down and, and, and essentially they stop working or they even stop existing after a while. So what that means to them is that if things are at a certain level here and then they start degenerating, that means working backwards, there has to be some original that they came from, some ideal or some form uh, that's in another reality, in another you know, spiritual reality somewhere that is the, the pattern that everything follows in the world. Because otherwise, how would, it, how would it know to start from something and then deteriorate downward, downward from there? So that's kind of how they reason through stuff. And they have this sort of backwards way of looking at things by following the patterns. You know, you're, you're looking at the, at the direction in which things are moving here. And then you're working backwards to arrive at some ideal conclusion or some, some starting point. And they did that for physical reality, for, for the things around them, but also for ethics. So they said, well, how do you, how do you know what is good? How do you, how you know what is bad? And they determined going backwards that there has to be some, this uh, original being or something that is the form of the good. So there has to be some ideal notion of, of, of good or morality. And then things start to deteriorate from there and things can get bad or worse and so on. But um, once they started looking at morality as some, some kind of external standard, um, this also affected Christian theology because in theology, we started thinking of the gospel in terms of sort of this courtroom setting where there's this external standard that's, that's being imposed on us. And as sinful human beings, we, we transgress the standard or we moved away from it or we did something wrong. And then God has to find a way to maintain the integrity of his standard while at the same time forgiving those he loves. So essentially the gospel has become like some kind of a legal loophole, you know, where God can on the one hand condemn the sin, but at the same time to save the sinner. So, so this, this frame of reference, this way of looking at things that's, that also can be traced back to the Greeks has also influenced the way as Christians, we look at the gospel itself, which is kind of the center of what we believe, the most essential element. Um, but if you look at morality from the biblical perspective, to, to, to the Bible, morality is, is part, of the answer, part of the very essence of reality. So basically, God created things a certain way, and they work only when they're done in that way. And, and this is not like some arbitrary thing that got imposed on reality. It's just, it's just the nature of how everything happens. So like, I mean, I could build something. I could build a, you know, let's say we had a, a contest and we said, uh, we want people to come up with <clears throat> new, new automobiles that have a different way of running as opposed to using gasoline or any of the regular fuels. Like we want, we want them to come up with brand new ways to, to propel a vehicle on the road. And we opened that up to people and people came up with solar cars and uh, natural gas cars and cars that work with water or whatever it is, right? They have all these different ways. But each one of those designs has to be 
done in such a way so that it works based on the on the principles that make it work. So if it's a solar car, then the nature of the engine, the nature of the design has to be such a way so that it actually is able to take energy from the sun and to, to propel itself, right? And if it's working with natural gas, then it has to be a mechanism that is able to, to take advantage of the energy that exists in natural gas. So basically, whichever way you go, there's an inherent logic to how things work. And if somebody builds, say, a solar car, but somebody else came around and they didn't know this was a solar car and they tried to, to make the engine work by, by making it run on gas or on something else, it's not going to work because it wasn't designed to work that way. So this world, you know, God could have created many different types of worlds, but which, whichever one he creates, there's a certain logic to it and it works a certain way. And if he creates human beings or intelligent creatures that are able to think and, and uh, interact and all this stuff, there's a certain logic to how they were created. And there's a certain logic to how they, how they work and how they flourish and how they are able to, to thrive in society or to thrive in, in their very existence. So morality is actually built into the very fiber of our existence. It's, it's, it's the way God created things to work. So when you have a version of the gospel, a picture of the gospel that is just the sort of courtroom style thing where you did something wrong and God finds a legal loophole and lets you, lets you go for free, you know, lets you free and stuff and you don't get punished. It, it just doesn't address the real problem with sin, which is that for some reason, we're no longer in line with the way God intended for us to live, for us to exist. So we're hurting ourselves. We're hurting each other. We're, we're in, in this constant state of chaos because we're just not lining up with the nature of reality. And if, <clears throat> if we look at reality or look at um, look at the gospel from the biblical perspective then we need to go much further than than what uh, this Greek ethic requires um, there's the the Christian version of of this sort of form of the good concept is called the uh, uh, divine command theory uh, and you, you could hear that among theologians talking about you know, uh, the purpose of divine command theory and, and how they, they understand the gospel from there. So anyway, so even when it comes to ethics and morality, um, elements of Greek thought have influenced Christian theology and have affected the way we think about the gospel. Whereas looking at things from a biblical perspective goes a lot deeper than, than some of these elements that people have uh, taken from philosophy. Okay, so, and then we talked about revelation inspiration. So now that we have some of this terminology that we've seen, you know, we have a timeless God that exists in a, in a whole different realm of existence. And he's, a, he's this ultimate being that is way different than us and like completely in another sphere of existence. And then, you know, the, there, there's this belief in the soul that is sort of tapped into to this timeless reality while the body, the, the physical body is existing in, in time. And then, you know, if you have that notion of, of metaphysics, then when you think about revelation inspiration, you're gonna think that the time has got somehow imprints his revelation on the human soul. And 
you're going to have a tendency to to kind of go along with an inerrant perspective. You're going to go along with inerrancy because of your philosophical presuppositions or predispositions. While if you view God more from the biblical perspective where God is uh, temporal, where he's historical, where he enters into interaction with human beings and and is, is able to communicate directly, then you have a different view of inspiration. So even even the very notion of revelation inspiration is affected by our philosophy. Now, just to clarify, when I say that the biblical God is temporal, I don't mean that he's temporal in terms of the way we are temporal. Um, God exists outside of our time. We, we, we're part of a creator reality that, that has its own temporal frame and God is not limited to this, this frame, but he's temporal in the sense that he, he still has his own sequence of, of existence as, as time passes. So he's able to interact with, our, with us within our time frame, uh, as opposed to God being timeless the way the philosophers view him, where um, he has no way to, to interact directly with us in time because he doesn't experience time the way we do. So anyway, those, those things get pretty complicated at, at the philosophical level. But, but the key here is that um, if we do solo scriptural theology, we need to <clears throat> allow the Bible to develop its own metaphysics, whether we might philosophically agree with it or not, and then use that as, as we to interpret the rest of scripture, as opposed to superimposing a metaphysical frame on scripture from, that we got from somebody else or from somewhere else. Um, it was hard for the church fathers to do this because some of these ideas are all they had. But today it's not difficult because there's many different perspectives, many different metaphysical viewpoints. And it's simply choosing one over the other. There's, there's no reason to, to be stuck on just one, given that there's so many different ways to look at things today. So we might as well just take a step back and let the Bible speak and let it, uh, let it develop its own frame, frame of understanding as opposed to relying on external perspectives. Okay, so the one thing that I mentioned that is most affected by this whole um, external metaphysic is, is the, the ability for us to decipher the Bible's macro narrative. Um, metaphysics affects your macro narrative because if you view God a certain way and you view the world and humanity a certain way, and if you reality as a whole a certain way, the kind of story that can make sense of this would be different than if you have a very different view of, re of reality. So coming up with a correct macro narrative is crucial for interpretation. The, the problem, of course, is that the Bible doesn't explicitly state it. You know, like when, when I talked about the movie, The Matrix, there's a point in time when uh, uh, Morpheus and you are sitting there and Morpheus says, do you want the blue pill or do you want the red pill? And depending on which one chose, Morpheus was going to pull back the curtains and either reveal everything to him or he was going to just let him stay in his ignorance. And Neo chose to, to hear reality. And all of a sudden, he woke up and he realized that he's just, he's plugged in and he has a, you know, he has all these hookups in his body. And he's, he's connected to this, uh, this sort of, uh, um, 
computer network that essentially takes control of his mind and keep him, keeps him preoccupied in this matrix, right? So, so that was the reality that he, he came to understand when, when, he, when he decided that he wants to know the truth. But the Bible doesn't like stop us all of a sudden after maybe the first two or three chapters or the first two or three books and say, okay, we need to stop and pull back the curtain and I, I'm going to explain to you exactly what reality is like behind the scenes. But the Bible does give us clues. So as we go through scripture from one end to the other, we get many different clues of things that are happening beside, behind the scenes and it's sufficient data for us to develop a big, a big picture of what's happening. The problem is we can't do this correctly if we have all these metaphysical constraints that we take from outside sources that keep us from allowing the Bible to just uh, describe its own sort of perspective on what's going on. And I would say that the Greek metaphysics is just incompatible with the kind of macro narrative that we get from reading the scripture. Now, I propose that the macro narrative that is the most compatible with the biblical data is what has come to be known recently as the cosmic conflict uh, macro narrative, where it's usually, it's usually uh, discussed from a theodicy perspective. Uh, a theodicy is um, basically the study of why suffering and evil exist in the world and how you could uh, um, reconcile that with, with the, this notion that God is good. And one of the ways that in more recent years has come to be a popular way to explain this sort of dilemma of a good God and a bad world is this idea of a cosmic conflict. Uh, it's been used a lot in apologetics. So you, if you follow apologetics, you hear popular apologists come up and describe this cosmic co conflict between good and evil. But the thing is this idea, while used in apologetics, has not been used in theology as a macro narrative, the way I've been describing it so far. Uh, now, just to be clear, the idea of a cosmic conflict is not the same thing as the, the, the notion of cosmic dualism, which is an ancient, uh, uh, back in, in early Christian history, there was um, a heresy the, known as the Manichaeism heresy, um, which had this notion that there is a good God and an evil God and they're, they're basically they're equally powerful. Like they can never fully overcome each other and they're at war and they're constant war. And that's, that's, that's why there's all this conflict in the world. And that's why there's good and bad in the world. The Bible rejects that notion. The Bible has nothing to do with that kind of concept, but the Bible does talk about a real conflict between good and evil that is temporary and it has a certain purpose. So the, the, the reason why this conflict is taking place is in order to protect free will and to, to be able to earn the love and trust of intelligent or um, um, created beings that have the capacity to, to examine and to evaluate and see what's going on. So um, just so, to take kind of a brief amount of time to to give a, an overview of what the cosmic conflict macro narrative is, uh, we'll go over step by step and then we'll come back and discuss why I think this is the correct macro narrative for scripture. All right, so what is the cosmic conflict? Um, 
I think the one of the simplest way to understand this macro narrative or this theodicy, let's talk about it from a theoretical perspective first. One of the simplest way to understand that is to look at it in three steps. Uh, the first step is that it's a modified free will theodicy. I'll, I'll explain this in a minute. The second step is that the, the theodicy has two layers. And the third step is that there are certain rules of engagement. <clears throat> so in order to introduce this idea, um, I want to kind of uh, jump back to what came to be known as the Epicurean trilemma, which goes way back to the Greeks as well. Um, and the reason is that this is almost a formal, logical uh, articulation of, of, of the argument. So it goes something like this. <clears throat> is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he is not omnipotent. Is he able but not willing? Then he is malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Then whence comes evil? Is he neither able nor willing? Then why call him God? So essentially, you could look at this as a logical syllogism. It's, it's kind of putting all the different concepts together and saying, um, if you have a good God, evil shouldn't exist. And there's a, there's a solution to this trilemma. And the immediate solution is the idea of free will. You could say, look, all these things could be true, all these elements, God can be good, evil can exist, and God might not address it right away because of free will. If, if an entity has free will <clears throat> and they choose to do something evil, then if God prevents that from happening, then what's the point of having free will to begin with? Like, why would you create a being that has free will if the minute they do something wrong, you don't allow it, right? So you could say, no, an omnipotent God, a loving God, um, all-powerful God, all these different things can exist and evil could exist at the same time if, if there's such a thing as free will. Now, <clears throat> the problem with this argument, however, is that it doesn't explain our world. It explains some possible worlds. In other words, there could be a universe where individual beings committed some, some evil thing and God allows them to exist and allows that evil to exist uh, just because he's, he's, he <clears throat> created free will and because of that he allows it to, to manifest itself in whichever direction he wants to go. <clears throat> but in our world that doesn't really work because we have innocent individuals that are suffering. For example, suffering babies. What exactly did a suffering baby do that made it this, what exactly did a baby do that made it deserve to experience that suffering, right? So, <clears throat> so the free will defense as it is known, while it could actually resolve the trilemma, generally speaking, it, it is not able to resolve the trilemma as far as our specific world is concerned. So then we have this modified free will defense, which is to say, well, God, an omnipotent, all-loving, all-powerful God, can allow evil to exist temporarily as a process of inoculation <clears throat> so that being that are not omniscient and that don't fully understand the ramifications of what evil can accomplish and what the consequences of evil are or of sin are, they could experience that for themselves. So that way, once God puts an end to this, to this sort of experiment or demonstration, uh, nobody is ever gonna to wanna to go back there again. So free will beings 
that have the capacity to go and, and turn away from God and do something bad are of themselves not going to want to go back there again. So God is not forbidding or, or refusing to allow them to exercise their free will. They're making a willful decision to do certain things because they've experienced it and they know they know what the consequences are and, and they don't want to experience those again, or they've seen the, the effects of sin. So the modified free will defense resolves the Epicurean trilemma and it explains our specific circumstances as well. Because in this, in this world, um, <clears throat> sin is allowed to exist for an extended period of time. And we see the results of that over generations as, as evil uh, continues to develop and evolve because you know sometimes you know evil has ripple effects we we don't always see the full results of something right away uh, it needs time to develop and we've had several thousand years at least uh, to see the effects of sin according to the scripture so <clears throat> this is another explanation this is an explanation that is able to resolve that that trilemma um, when we approach it from a basically formal logic from as a logical syllogism and just just address it and say yeah this this thing this thing adds up it makes sense there, there's an explanation to this trilemma uh, but this is just the first part of this this uh, the odyssey now the second part is the fact that this is a two-layered conflict so it's not just about humanity but there's other beings as well that are involved in this conflict so you know God could have used many different scenarios, but the, the one he did use is the one that described in scripture where, where you know, God is being opposed by this, this being, this created being called Lucifer, or used to, who used to be called Lucifer, who is one of the, the highest beings ever created. And then there's an angelic layer. So basically a lot of, a lot of angels follow Lucifer while a lot of angels stayed on God's side of things. And humanity is involved in this process and there's possibly other beings as well that are uh, observing this whole thing. Um, and uh, essentially the, the point of all this is that it's not just about us. There's multiple layers to this debate or to this, to this conflict that is taking place. Um, and the, <clears throat> the idea is that the benefits of what, are, what is happening here on earth you know, even though we ourselves are going through this experience and we're suffering and we're going through misery and pe people all over the world are, are experiencing evil in various forms, um, we only have a limited time to experience it. I mean, it's, you know, even though humanity has been going on for thousands of years, each individual uh, only has to go through it for a few decades, right? But we all go through these experiences, and, but it's not just for us. Other beings are participating or other beings are simply observing and they're learning from what is happening here so that God could bring things to a point where he's going to put an end to the suffering and an end to this end to sin. And then after that, he never has to worry about it again because all intelligent beings that, that are, are part of his kingdom are going to, to understand why they don't want to try that again. They don't want to ever do this again. So for the rest of eternity, it doesn't become an issue anymore. So this, this sort of addresses like the big picture of what is happening. Now, the third layer here is the idea of rules of engagement. So um, for this experiment to work, <clears throat> um, we gotta acknowledge the fact that both God and Lucifer or Satan are extremely powerful beings. 
and it's possible for them to tamper with the data. So yes, there's a demonstration, but God is so powerful that he could make it come out any way he wants, right? And then Satan as well, he could do various things to, to deceive and to make it look like the results are different than what they actually are. So in order to address this, there has to be certain rules that make this a fair process. Um, <clears throat> both God and Satan have to abide by these rules so that all, all the rest of the universe that is observing this could look at it and say, no, this is a legitimate experiment. The data is real, the data is significant, and we can look at the results and trust the results because neither God nor Satan went in and tampered with, with that in, and affected the results in any, in any way that um, changes the, the outcome. So what that means is that there's limits to what both God and Satan can do while this experiment is taking place. And this is not to say that God is limited himself. This is not to say that God is weak or he's, he's, uh, he, he has, he's just as strong as Satan or Satan is just as strong as God. No, God is way stronger than Satan. Um, obviously God is all powerful, but he willfully subjects himself to these limitations for the sake of this experiment. So as, as everyone participating in this and probably humanity as well after it's all over and we can look back and see what happened, as we look at this, this thing, at, the, at this demonstration, we could see that <clears throat> God acted fairly, that Satan did his best and he, he was limited, but he was free to do everything he needed to do to make his point. And then we could look at the results and draw our conclusions and the Bible says that the final outcome of this experiment is that it will never need to happen again. And there will always be beings that have free will and they have the choice to go in whichever direction they want, but they would choose not to rebel against God again. And it will make it possible for all intelligent beings to, to live in harmony with each other and with God and for, for all created beings to love their creator and, and to trust him because they've seen for themselves that he wants what's best for them. So um, sin can be eliminated in this way without compromising free will. Now, the rules of engagement themselves, you know, some of them <clears throat> we might be able to de deduce from scripture, but we don't have a full revelation of what those rules are. We see God restricting Satan from several things. Like, for example, with Job, first he says, okay, you could only do this much. Uh, in fact, when, when it all begins, Satan tells God, you, you put a hedge around it, right? So God was protecting Job from Satan taking advantage of him which shows that there are certain limits. God, God is putting certain limits on Satan over there. But then God moves those back, but says, you can only go this far. And then he's, he moves them back even further and, and says, don't, don't kill him. Whatever you do, whatever you do to him, don't take, his, uh, take away his life. So we see a little bit of this, of this idea that there are certain rules in place, but we don't fully understand them. But if we allow for this idea of rules of engagement, it actually helps explain many of the difficult things we see in scripture that uh, a lot of people have um, have struggled with and a lot of critics of Christianity have argued about. Like, for example, probably one of the most difficult aspect, aspects of scripture are the, uh, the times when the nation of Israel went around and, and wiped out com complete nations within Canaan. So, for example, the Amalekites um, and other nations over there. Um, so, there's all these moral conundrums that, that come from this idea that God would allow for genocide to take place. 
But if you if you uh, um, look at things from this cosmic conflict perspective, I'm not saying that it will make things easy all of a sudden where we could just simply dismiss this 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 things from the Bible and say, oh, it's no big deal that that these people were wiped out or anything like that. But there's a pathway for finding a, a, a way to address these things that that is <clears throat> a lot a lot better, a lot a lot easier to deal with than without having this cosmic conflict perspective. Once you allow for this idea that there's a war going on between God and Satan and that there that there's limits to what both parties can do, uh, but there's certain things that need to be accomplished within this time frame, whatever several thousand years that we have that we're here, in order to make sure this never happens again. And once you allow for that, then there's room to come up with solutions to some of those problems. Um, it also explains other things, like you know, things like why why is it that God doesn't answer when we're crying, when we're suffering, and so on, or uh, you know, the idea of the silence of God when you need him, where is God when you need him? Some, sometimes God is there, sometimes he answers, but sometimes it just feels like he's not really there. And people always wrestle with that. And Christians have wrestled with that as well. And uh, when you look at things from the, from a Greek perspective, it's always because God is so far away. He's, he's in such a different sphere of existence that um, it's not even rational to ask those kinds of questions because you know, God is, is so above us and so so distant from us in that sense. But when you look at this, things from, from this cosmic conflict perspective, um, it makes sense that these things will be there because, you know, there's rules in place where God cannot just step in every time one of his children is suffering because they'll be playing favorites, right? And then people will become Christian just because, um, you know, they get to escape some of the problems that they would face otherwise, right? So, so some of this, when we look at some of these questions from within this cosmic conflict perspective, it, things start to add up and things start to make sense a lot easier than approaching it from, from other points of view. Okay, so, so I've presented a macro narrative. <clears throat> In fact, I've taken something that has, has been known as a theoretical perspective um, for some time now. Uh, and I've, I've said, no, it's not just a theodicy, it's a macro narrative for the whole scripture. In other words, all of Christian theology, all of biblical theology can be done within this framework of this macro narrative. Now, why this? Am I just arbitrarily picking one out of all the different possible macro narratives? And I would argue that it's not an arbitrary selection, but in fact, <clears throat> it's simply looking at all the biblical data and choosing the macro narrative that fits best. So in other words, like if we had this imaginary table and we put on this table all the different macro narratives that Christians have come up with over the past 2000 years, we could take each one and try it on the biblical data and see how well it harmonizes with that data. So for example, we, we talked about Platonism. There's this, uh, the, the concept of God and the concept of reality that this is described in Platonism functions or can be taken to function as a macro narrative in scripture. But I've explained how when you put it on scripture, it just doesn't line up very well. So you end up having to, to take a lot of sections in scripture and, and make them allegorical just to line up with your, with your external perspective. Um, another macro narrative that's slightly different, even though it has sort of the same roots, is the, the one that Calvinists use, which is this idea of divine sovereignty, where God is essentially in complete control of everything and there is no free will and everything happens exactly the way God ordains. Um, 
that's a macron error that you could take and superimpose on scripture. But again, it creates lots of problems because if you take the Bible from the beginning and follow the story, um, the Bible has a very different picture of reality where it's all about free will. It's all about people's choices. Um, and then you go through most of the Bible until you get to some sections in the New Testament. You say, well, here you go, that's your proof. But that's one piece of data as opposed to basically everything else that, that you, you, you take and you build as you go through scripture. So, so this is kind of a force fit. When you, when you take the Calvinist macronary, you end up force fitting it on top of scripture. Um, and, and you could apply that to pretty much any known macronarrative, whether it's uh, things that are just usually not even considered uh, orthodox ideas, like, like I mentioned dualism. <clears throat> That's one macronarrative that, that can be used and, and the Medicaeans use that. Um, and it just doesn't add up. It doesn't fit with the biblical data and you could go through, through many others as well. Um, and uh, what I'm saying is that when you look at all of them, this is the one that just seems to, to fit right on top of the data and accommodate all of it without having conflicts anywhere where you have to kind of find allegorical interpretations of some section of scriptures to accommodate the macro narrative. Now, the problem, the problem with the cosmic conflict macro narrative is not its ability to interact with the biblical data. Historically, the problem with this macro narrative has been that it just doesn't fit well with the Greek metaphysics. And again, this is why I'm saying you have to let the Bible develop its own metaphysics because to the Greeks, this idea of God being in this conflict with Satan, this continuous battle of back and forth just doesn't add up because God is so much greater than all the other created beings. And there, there is, there is no, no other being that is anywhere near equal to God for this to even work. It just, it doesn't make sense within that frame of reference, within that, that perspective on reality. So because of that, it just, this macro narrative hasn't been used to develop Christian theology. It hasn't been used historically, even though it was present historically, and there's, there's people even among the earlier theologians that have thought of this idea of a cosmic conflict or have used it in their, in their theological musings, but as a general trend, it hasn't been historically used as the macro narrative to which to understand scripture. And then again, at, during the Protestant Reformation, um, people went back to Platonism and Aristotelianism wasn't much, much better either. I mean, it still had the same sort of notion of God that would not have lined up with such a macro narrative. And then Protestantism went back to Platonism and so on. So the problem with this conflict now, even now, like as I'm, as I'm saying this, somebody might be listening to this and they might think, no, the cosmic conflict just doesn't work. So I would ask them to think about what metaphysics are they using? Because if they're looking at it through the lens of the Platonic notion of God, it's not gonna work. It's just incompatible by its very nature. And that's the reason they're, they're rejecting it, not because it doesn't line up with scripture. I mentioned that there's historical precedent for <clears throat> for this macro narrative. People, um, theologians throughout history have have thought of it and have used it. It's been popularized by modern apologetics. I've talked about that as well. Um, I've only talked about this briefly here, and people might still not fully understand what I'm talking about when I speak of a cosmic conflict macro narrative. So I would recommend this book. It's an academic articulation of this com concept. 
It's called The Odyssey of Love, Cosmic Conflict and the Problem of Evil by uh, Dr. John Peckham. So if somebody needs to spend a little more time catching up with this idea, then that's probably a good place to go and get a sense of some of the things I've talked about so far um, with <clears throat> the sort of conflict between good and evil and the rules of engagement and so on. Um, again, when we approach things with the intention to do sola scriptura theology, we need to give interpretative priority to the macro narrative. So <clears throat> let's say if we've never studied the Bible before, we're reading it for the first time, we pick it up. The first thing we do when we read it through is we got to decipher the macro narrative. Once we understand that, then we go back and we read everything else in light of that big picture. If we expect to be able to treat the Bible as a standalone document, otherwise, uh, without a, a clear concept of this macro narrative or the behind the scenes story, uh, we could come up with different interpretation of just about every aspect of the Bible. It is impossible to do so as scripture theology without having a macro narrative or a big picture or, or a unifying thread that keeps everything together. All right, so some of the other things that I'm quickly gonna address here uh, in the paper that I've written, I spent a little more time on them, but we don't have time to, to to go into them in detail here. Uh, <clears throat> in Christian, especially in Protestant theology, uh, the gospel itself became a hermeneutical lens. So basically Luther came up with this idea of righteousness by faith, and then he began to use it to interpret scripture. The problem with doing it this way, and a lot of people today still rely on the gospel in their her hermeneutics, and, and they, they give the gospel a central role in their hermeneutics. But the problem with this is that the gospel is actually a solution to a problem, right? So it's kind of like an antidote. So uh, you're sick with some disease and you go to the doctor and the doctor gives you a pill, but the pill is the solution to a particular disease. So if you're gonna use the gospel as a hermeneutical lens, just the antidote on, it, on its own isn't gonna help you make sense of things because that antidote addresses a specific problem. And the problem is the macro narrative. So you still have to rely on the macro narrative in order to figure out what the problem is. So then you could understand what the solution is. And then you could use this problem solution uh, complex, I guess, or the, the <clears throat> you could use both the problem and the solution as your macro narrative from scripture. And it's it's in that way that you could allow your, allow your understanding of the gospel to affect how you interpret everything else but it has to be in the context of the correct macro narrative. Otherwise, you're just gonna misunderstand it again. Uh, the gospel is just gonna, uh, using the gospel as a hermeneutical lens just becomes another thing that ends up fragmenting Christianity or fragmenting Protestantism. Okay, th then another thing is, this is the last thing I mentioned in the previous lecture, the need for self-authentication. The, the need for scripture to have a way to authenticate its, itself as, as being true. Um, now, most people throughout history would say, well, the Bible takes the existence of God for granted. It doesn't say, it doesn't ask the question, does God exist? It doesn't ask the question, which God is the correct God? The Bible just takes this for granted and goes from there. So because of that, a lot of Christian theologians said, well, to, to make the argument that God exists, you got to rely on philosophy. So most of the 
epistemic models that I've mentioned in previous lectures, they have a philosophical basis. And then on top of that basis, they build on, uh, on other factors, the rest of their Christian theology. So they rely on philosophical arguments to argue why, you know, like things like the cosmological argument, fine tuning and all those different things, depending on which tradition you're part of, you might have different philosophical arguments for the existence of God and for some of the beginning elements in your theology. And then later on, you, you come to scripture or to some other, um, other things to do the rest of your theology. Okay, but if we're gonna do sola scriptura theology, what do we do? Because we're not relying as much on philosophy as some of the other models. Uh, the thing is this idea that the Bible does, that the, that the Bible takes the existence of God for granted is not correct. The Bible recognizes the fact that people doubt. It's all throughout scripture where God is addressing doubt. He's just addressing it differently. He's not using philosophical arguments to prove that he is there, he's using other approaches. One of the main things is miracles, uh, you know, like Moses and Pharaoh, right? He has all these plagues to demonstrate to Pharaoh that he is real. Um, Elijah and <clears throat> in the fire coming from heaven to show that Baal does Baal, you know, it's not it's not a real god and all this stuff, right? So there there are things in the Bible that are meant to address doubt just like some of these philosophical arguments are meant to address doubt in, in other theological frameworks. But the thing with this miraculous type of events is that they're actually exceptions. So even though in the Bible, they seem to come up quite a bit, if you look at the whole biblical story, uh, they're fairly rare events where, you know, they happen, uh, you know, when Moses is there, when Elijah is there, when Jesus is around, but for much of the rest of biblical history, there isn't so much going on in terms of miraculous occurrences taking place. But there's something else in place that makes up for the lack of the miracles. And that is uh, the fulfillment of prophecy. So when you look at the Bible from beginning to end, the way it defends its own authenticity is through God making predictions about things that are going to happen in the future. And then those things unfolding and then people having faith in God because what he said was going to happen did happen. So, you know, Jesus makes the statement, I have told you before it comes to pass so that when it does come to pass, you may believe. So in the Bible, the thing that is used to authenticate the reality of what the Bible says has been prophecy. That's what it was all throughout the biblical history. And if that's the process used throughout biblical history, then that's it makes sense to expect that that's the same process that's going to be used in the future for maybe even for our time. But in order for that to be the case, prophecy has to be interpreted to a certain frame. And it's known as the historicist approach to prophecy. So basically, um, for those not familiar, there's, there's several famous approaches to biblical prophecy. And this usually applies to books like Daniel and Revelation that have kind of a wider prophetic scheme. So there's the the preterist approach, which assumes all the prophecy happened back in biblical times. And then there's the futurist approach, which assumes all the prophecies will happen in the future at some point after the rapture. And then there's the idealist approach, which takes prophecy more as an as a object lesson or as some kind of spiritual teaching, not as something that is actually going to happen. 
and then there's the historicist approach, which is, assumes prophecy happens throughout history. Now, the preterist approach cannot work with the Sola Scriptura theology as, as a means of authentication because everything happened way in the past. So there's no way for us today to know uh, if it happened before, if the prophecies were made before or after the fact. Um, it could just be that people wrote the things later than they actually happened. Um, and the historic, I mean, the futurist approach doesn't work either because uh, the futurist approach claims all that stuff is going to happen after the rapture, so it's of no use to us today. And obviously, the idealist approach has no connection with the real world, so it doesn't really help us in any way. So, in terms of self-authentication, a sola scriptura theology has to work with the historicist approach to prophecy uh, because. That there really isn't anything else that scripture points to for self-authentication. And that's the only way that it could, we could make it work. Um, so basically the question I'm asking here is, instead of we going to philosophy and trying to create a, a foundation for Christian theology in terms of like proving the existence of God and things like that, what if we go to the scripture and figure out what the scripture wants to use? And I'm saying that what the scripture wants to use is prophecy. And it's prophecy interpreted historically. Um, I don't have the time to get into this here. I talk about it a little more in the paper itself, but even there, I I, I plan to to put together an appendix later and, and describe this in more details. But I'm just bringing this up because it's a question that needs to be addressed at some point. And I'm just saying that this is the way that it will have to be addressed to stay within the framework of a solar scripture theology. Okay, so basically the conclusion here is that if you have a macro-narrative mismatch, you end up with theological fragmentation, like what we've seen in Protestantism. Um, so it's a good possibility that that could explain why Protestantism ended up breaking into so many fragments over, over the 500 years that it's been around. And then the, the macro-narrative that we're proposing, again, it's not an arbitrary proposal, it's just based on uh, overlaying the frame on top of the data and looking at all the different ones and seeing which one fits the best. And I've proposed that the com cosmic conflict macronarrative is the one that uh, incorporates all the data uh, seamlessly without, without all the difficulties you end up with if you try other macronarratives. Um, in the next episode, we're going to move from uh, defining Sola Scriptura theology to explaining how it will interact with uh, all the issues that come up in, in, in modern times, you know, things like higher criticism, things like science and so on.